by Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Today we are closing this cast, the films of Tarantino, and uh, we're wrapping that up with the new film release, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which as of this recording came out yesterday. So there will be spoilers in our com- uh, conversation, but yeah, I mean, I'm excited to talk about this one, so, Matt. This has been a very divisive uh, uh interesting cask for for you and i and kind of where we fall on the tarantino spectrum maybe a little bit more eye-opening for you (laughs) you took the words right out of my mouth i think you came into this cask knowing what your relationship with tarantino was Mm -hmm. and i think this cast helped me really redefine what it actually was versus what i thought it was Mm -hmm. Uh, last night was an interesting viewing to say the least Mm -hmm. and some of the things that I feared in the last podcast when I forecast, here's my issues, yeah. came to fruition and some of them didn't. But yeah, <clears throat> I actually have a lot to talk about, mm-hmm. uh, as you do, um, and a strange experience in film for me last night. Well, strange, and it just kind of boils down to this just very odd 2019 film slate, like... Well, I'll get into that a little bit later, but like, man, I, I have not been like wowed by a film this year. It's been it's been kind of interesting, bar like, you know, like Rocket Man and, and, and maybe like a couple other films. That's been kind of a bummer, just that's just summer, but kind of a year. We started off slow. Boy, yeah, you said a mouthful there. Not to jump on the bandwagon here. Yeah. But as far as twenty nineteen being a slow year, like I agree. And as much as we sort of say uh, Critic-wise, maybe Rocket Man wins the summer. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not in any hurry sure. to go and re-watch Rocket Man mm-hmm. again either. Yeah. So we're sort of picking from you know the the tree of rotten fruit with like <laughs> the most palatable piece of fruit yeah, on. Give the... me that rotten pear instead of that rotten apple over there. I think in the next couple weeks, as we kind of close out the summer season. Mm-hmm. One of our flight questions should probably be three best and three worst films just of the summer. Okay. Because uh, I thought a couple of the sleepy things <clears throat> that usually are hidden gems in the summer for me mm-hmm. didn't exactly deliver either. Mm-hmm. But you absolutely have hit a nail on the head. Yeah. It's, is 2019 really this bad or have I turned you into the get off my lawn guy of film critics no no not at all just because there was some things i was looking forward to this year and they're just they're not living up to expectations i think everything's just very palatable this year so when i kind of when i go into work on mondays and i tell my co-workers oh i saw this movie over the weekend i was like it was serviceable mm-hmm. it wasn't the worst thing i've ever seen no no but i'm not rushing back to want to rewatch that that's kind of how I felt with Spider-Man. Spider-Man Far From Home was a serviceable movie. Yeah. So let's get into that. But today we're drinking some uh, a new a new drink today. Um, this is the Brown Bomber Hard Latte. 
<laughs> having a little bit of liqueur with our coffee. What mm-hmm. do you think of that, Matt? Uh, yeah, that's a nice start for the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for all of you out there that are listening, it's early. Me and Jesse are cutting this early this yeah. morning. Excellent. So you're going to get the raw, unwoke steak of us. The raw state of us. The raw, the raw of rye. <laughs> Excellent. Outtakes. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. So, like always, we're going to start with the flight question and kind of keeping it again in that you know Tarantino vein. You know, kind of looking past you know to film ten or you know what whatever's on the horizon for him, whether that's television or whatever. Um, my question was, you know, he's worked with a very interesting, diverse group from A-list talent to like has been actors that he's kind of brought up from the from the grave, uh, which we, there was a little bit of that in this in the film film last night too. Uh, TV Spider Man <laughs> with his salt, salt and pepper shaker eyes, Nicholas Hammond, like very very hot. Like, did we figure out who he was? In the he film? was definitely the, the the producer or the director guy of Lancer. Okay. Strange. Very strange. Uh, very odd uh, decision. But my question to you, Matt, is who's someone, actor and actress, that you would actually like to see cast in Tarantino's next film or to work with him? There's a few that came to mind. Mm-hmm. I considered Edward Norton for a little while. Mm. Uh, I think diversity fits really well with Tarantino. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is there's a type that we associate actors and characters with. Like if I mentioned to you um, Jason Statham, Mm -hmm. you would automatically go towards... Like Expendables. Right. Yeah. Or if I said um, Mila Kunis, she would go to... Yeah, like Bad Moms. Okay, right. I think where Tarantino does a good job with his casting Mm -hmm. is taking the Mila Kunis-esque or the Edward Norton-esque. And by the way, those are two that I brought up that I actually considered. Sure. And casting them out of genre... Mm Mm-hmm. Or out of expectation, yeah. maybe not genre. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've talked about it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a lot to do with Elmore Leonard, my answer to this. Okay. I want mm-hmm. him to do a George Clooney, Blake Lively mm. noir. Mm. It doesn't have to be traditional noir, Yeah. but, but I not- think he could do it really well. And if you think about the nature of noir, yeah. it sets up for, I think, where... Mm-hmm. Sometimes I find frustrating, and you you love, but also I, I will admit there's um, a talent that he shows mm-hmm. in dialogue sequences. Mm-hmm. That's a naturally violent movie. There's drugs. It in, you know, involves a bunch of hard-boiled motherfuckers, an which ins- are most of his characters. <laughs> Maybe an insurance scam in there. You know, I, <laughs> I just it's sort of set up for. Sure. I think. A wheelhouse traditional mm-hmm. get back to basics. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino, tenth film to yeah. finish off his filmography. Which, by the way, I'm just going to say it. If you think for a minute, any of the people out there, that he's stopping at ten films, yeah. I've got some swampland in Alaska that I can sell you yeah. at a going rate of ninety nine cents yeah. an acre right now. I think there's he, no way. But I, I think he should stop at at film ten, just kind of based on on where we're going with this. But right. let that go by the wayside. And I like that. I like yeah, Clooney. Of course, was in from Dust Till Dawn, which was kind of written by him but directed by someone else. And yeah, Blake Lively, who I I, I um. I haven't seen in a, in, a, in a film. I can't remember the last film I, I saw her in, but she, she's been great in a lot of the town and um, Age of Adeline films like that. So did you like Age of Adeline? No, it was good. I we did we saw that together yeah, actually. I yeah, really liked that film. Yeah, but the other one that I kicked around a little bit 
was Marion Cotillard. Oh, yes. I don't know what happened to her, man. Well, she's still in. She, she, she does a lot of like foreign French films. Yeah, she had that really nice run for about three years, Inception and Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, and then that other one that I can't remember that she was nominated for. Uh, um, she would be good in an award, too. Put her in that same movie. Oh, she's sure. Yeah. Okay, maybe both of them. Yeah. Boy. I, <laughs> it's pretty good. And don't make it Serenity. Yeah, don't have it turn into a video game. <laughs> exactly. Excellent. Okay, I'm I'm actually going to go with maybe my one of my favorite working actress actresses and actor today who I think would just kind of you know just chew his scenery very well. The first one's Amy Adams. You know, you talked last week about Tarantino kind of doing female characters, you know, pretty good like The Bride and and and, and a few others in there. Whenever I see Amy Adams in in a, in a film, I you like it's there's always something tragic going on with her characters, and she really kind of brings out that empathy in that character. I mean, you could do do that in here, have like like a real you know like hard you know you know female that like wants to get revenge, or she's just gonna take this thing by the horns. But I think she would be you know very apt, and you can kind of go the film noir route with her as well. Sure. Um, so she's one of them, and then you know if I have to pick an actor, just kind of someone who just kind of transforms on the on the scene, too, is Tom Hardy. I think he could That's have a, have a lot of fun with you know with Tarantino's dialogue and just kind of creating a caricature, which I think a lot of Car- Tarantino's characters become caricatures of their of themselves, and it's just kind of which ones stick the landing and which ones don't. But I think I think he could bring you know quite a bit. I actually toyed around too with like a what if kind of casting and two actors R.I.P. who I would love to have seen in one of his movies also would have been Robin Williams mm-hmm. and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, I can't believe Hoffman didn't kind of like team up with him at, at one point. You know, Boogie Nights like itself kind of feels like you know an homage to Tarantino, like right out of the kind of the vein of like a Pulp Fiction, sure, which features him. So. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen him like be one of these kind of players in, in one of these films. I think the Tom Hardy choice is a really good one. Mm-hmm. For all of the people out there that have never seen the film Locke, I can't recommend that film highly enough. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's him on the way. I don't want to give it away, but on the way to the hospital for a reason. Yeah. That is revealed later in the movie. And you're watching him put out these fires <clears throat> on the Bluetooth in his car as he's in transit to the hospital yeah and it's 90 minutes of pretty gripping action done through here it is mm-hmm. really really strong dialogue yeah i think you and i both have alluded to the same thing in the space that he fits well in mm-hmm. and it's thriller yeah whether it's noir or some version of mm-hmm. crime drama-esque yeah that seems to be the vein that he works really well in and i think that's also a type of film that you and i are both fans oh, yeah. of yeah. huge fans of yeah so, um, I'd be really curious to see what the thought process is in the writing room with him as so far, insofar as here's the story that I want to tell. Mm-hmm. You brought up something that's really important, I think, that has to do with what 2019 hasn't been up to this point. And you said it a few minutes ago, it's the what if scenario. I have something I'm going to, I'm going to play a game with you in a few minutes okay. and I'm sure we'll get into it in the breakdown of the film excellent but i don't want to let the cat out of the bag too much uh but yeah excellent nice cast yeah that's pretty good so here's to the casting of those films here's to the cast we'll never see <laughs> exactly because this next film will probably be a musical <laughs> you'll just think go about with... it no real think about it one of the things he should do that i would like to see and i and 
very little that I kind of see in it last and it kind of got me a little excited is to kind of do a foray into into horror now death proof is a slasher of sorts mm-hmm. but like a full-on type of horror because he's just as much a fan of that as, as we are too like I wonder because he's done crime kung fu war western like that seems to kind of be the one that's missing <laughs> yeah that might be the possibility that's why I said musical yeah I could actually see him doing that yeah I'm not kidding. Mm-hmm. Like paint your wagon esque. Oh gosh, yeah. So like, let's kind of see what what, what what we get there. But I think it's time now more than ever. Again, there will be spoilers. So Matt, let's. Are you ready to go back to 1969's Hollywood? Let's do it. <laughs> Hop right. on the time machine. Put your platform shoes on, and let's rock and roll. Hopefully, it's not a time heist. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood actually starts out with a couple things that I've liked that we've already talked about in these podcasts, which is the visual presentation aesthetic of a Tarantino film. We start with like a promo sweeps commercial for the current Rick Dalton vehicle played by Leonardo DiCaprio called Bounty Law, which is kind of like a uh, I don't know if that was a real show or not, not but it's it's, it's very much like a Gunsmoke, Bonanza, The Rifleman type of show. Yeah. Uh, but we get like the classic NBC logos. It's in black and white. And then we kind of get like this full on interview of, you know, him side by side with his stuntman, Cliff Booth, played by by Brad Pitt. So they kind of go hand in hand and they've been working together for, for a while. But there's uh, he's at a bit of a crossroads uh, being Rick Dalton, being that like. He's kind of like just this TV actor and he can't make that like breakthrough into into film, which, you know, I wish the film had played with this a lot more in longer strides versus just like these like kind of short segments, because this could have been something to kind of really kind of flesh out. And by the end, you know, we kind of get that, but then like not really either. Yeah, Uh, right. It sets itself up to be an homage Mm -hmm. to a foregone era in Hollywood. And I think the title in a lot of ways is really appropriate. Yeah. Once upon a time, Mm -hmm. alluding to the history of what was, Mm -hmm. I would also question you though, once upon a time in Hollywood being the title of the film is also appropriate for what might define Tarantino's early years versus his latter years. Sure. Right? Do you understand what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Like once upon a time he was this and now yeah. it's this. There is no question mm-hmm. that he has a strong grasp on certain parts of history and the nostalgia and the pop culture that goes around it. You cannot argue that. No, yeah. I'd give him last night I give Tarantino an A plus on just like nailing the the design of 1969's Hollywood. Much like in Glorious Bastards, mm-hmm. it sets itself up then to be a revisionist history piece. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm i lukewarmly interested in mm-hmm. that. Taking 1969. Yeah. Haight-Ashbury, anti-Vietnam sentiment. Mm-hmm. You can go on and on with everything that's yeah. going on. 
the social and civil changes that the United States is experiencing. And this is a time in Hollywood that we actually really like the films that are coming out. Love it. Really challenging and changing, you know, the norms of what's acceptable on celluloid, like Midnight Cowboy, The Graduate, Deliverance. Last Picture Show. Yeah. Yeah, all of that stuff. But all of that stuff is birthed Mm -hmm. at a time when the United States is really really struggling with angst. Mm -hmm. This is something that I've given a lot of thought to in the last three or four weeks, and it has to do with the summer season as much as it does, maybe even more so than the Tarantino cask. I'm not trying to say that there's not strife or turmoil in American society right now. But most of that, when you really boil it down, comes from snipey Twitter from the right to the left Mm -hmm. and whether you like the president or don't at a time of genuinely speaking economic prosperity peace Mm -hmm. employment like things and again i i know that on the service it doesn't feel that way but nothing compared to this time well what i'm saying though is those movies that you mentioned, Midnight Cowboy, Deliverance, yeah. were birthed at a time that had conflict a and angst. Yes. And good conflict and angst mm. creates really good art. Yes. Art, again, art through adversity. We discussed this you before. Espouse it mm-hmm. on the screen. Mm-hmm. Man, Jesse, mm-hmm. I think that right now has as much to do with the failures or the reheatedness, if you will, the mm-hmm. palatability is enough yeah. in film. Is I don't think there's a driving crisis mm-hmm. or drama yeah. to create really strong art. Now that doesn't mean that in individual lives there's not moments. Yeah. But and I know that right now, if you take the last um, let's just say twelve years, yeah, politically there's mm-hmm. plenty of issues that side A has this with side B. Yeah. But I'm going to contend. Through that 12 years, Mm -hmm. most people's lives have changed a little bit. Mm -hmm. You you, you know, when I noticed in my my generation kind of kind of growing up here and this is all kind of, you know, like very within the vein of this kind of like millennial generation. Like I noticed film change a little bit after September 11th. I noticed, you know, even like, you know, James Bond himself had to change the invisible car was such bullshit at that point he had to become a gritty films like jason Bourne or the Bourne identity and you know reboots like batman begins we got more realistic with that you know we saw a more grittier style of horror with you know films like saw and hostels i mean we we definitely went a different direction post that event um so that the, the you know kind of kind of similar, but like back here in the '60s, you know, you just stacked it up. Civil rights, um, you know, you know they're killing presidents. We're in Vietnam. Like the things are just screwed, man. Right. Yeah. And screwed for real. Mm-hmm. Right now, there is a definite feeling of racial tension in the United States, and I think a lot of Tarantino's films operate in that space too Mm -hmm. okay so the news cycle won't cover this story Mm -hmm. because there's no story that is here's this ethnicity person sitting next to this ethnicity person at the bus stop 
and hey, they're getting along just fine. Back to you, Steve. Mm-hmm. There's no story there. Yeah. So what ends up driving the story is, I don't want to say anecdotal because that belittles that, mm-hmm. but the outside of the norm mm-hmm. that occurs. And so I think you're always going to have 10-ish percent of the population that are jerks and whatever you want to measure them out as. Mm-hmm. That 10% creates a lot of noise, whereas most of the other 90%, and some people might say 20, but okay, whatever. Yeah. The other X percent that's the larger whole that's pretty socially adjusted mm-hmm. is living in a world that I don't want to say is strife-free, but compared to like the decade that you and I, or that period that you and I just mentioned, mm-hmm. it's just smoother sailing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's the solution? God forbid something terrible happens. I don't want that. <clears throat> no one wants war, and I don't want more racial strife. Yeah. But what it's causing is a lack of creativity and film. And then the second thing I want to add to this, which mm-hmm. is kind of unrelated. Yeah. There's so many different media sources right now, whether it's streaming mm-hmm. or movies or whatever social um, media platform that you're on mm-hmm. to fill all of those networks. Yeah, all those avenues. You're going to get some crap. Yeah. And how do you go through the great unwashed of all of it? I don't. Do you, you have the time? No, you just have to kind of watch and hope one sticks the landing. And here's the thing that probably breaks your and my heart the most: mm-hmm. we love traditional film mm-hmm. in the theater with a group of people that you don't know yeah. experiencing it. And I think that venue right now is the slowest to react yeah. to both of those phenomena. Yeah, definitely. So I. I This speaks to Once Upon a Time and the necessity to tell a story in 1969. Well, I'll just kind of tell you, just based on my observations last night, I thought the film, I think there was a lot of restlessness in the theater last night. I mean, Through boredom or uncomfort, what did you think? I think maybe through boredom. I think so, too. I had to get up one. I never get up in the movies. I had to go use the bathroom. You got up to go use the bathroom. And you know what? When we got up for the four or five minutes that we were gone... I don't think we missed a thing. And we weren't the only ones. There was people kind of getting up in there and, like, not really kind of, like, fully engaged. Because get ready and buckle up because this is what we're going to do a lot of. We're going to do a lot of walking from one scene to the next. A lot of driving from one scene to the next. Boy, you that was for Revenant-like in some ways. Yeah. But, like, okay, so, like... Cliff and and, uh, yeah. and Rick go go to to this this bar um for Frank and Musso's which is is, is still 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 uh, still around there in, in in Hollywood, and they run into Al Pacino who's playing was he, was he a producer or manager I kinda, yeah. yeah okay film magnate yeah so to kind of like jumpstart Rick Dalton's career saying you're gonna be stuck in TV you're gonna be a TV man. Uh, unless you kind of go do these these other pictures, go do these spaghetti westerns, which he doesn't want to he doesn't want to become that. He wants to kind of make it here. I mean, for God's sakes, he lives next door to Roman Polanski of of, of all people. So, you know, there's something there's they're setting up something interesting. But I noticed something in that opening bit, which is as powerful as an actor as Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Pacino are. That scene like doesn't like command the screen the way that Christoph Waltz and Mansoor Lapidit do in the opening of Inglorious Bastards. I mean, the weight just isn't there, um, and it, the to- and tonally it's different, but 
you know, structurally, it's this is what I was waiting for, Matt. I was waiting for these sitting at the table dialogue scenes. And this might be like one of the few that we actually get in the film. And it's it doesn't leave like a mark on me. There's few things in this film just kind of cat out of the bag that that don't really like resonate with me. There's not a lot that I walked away from this film going like that was like an iconic sequence within the lore of Tarantino. I just kind of thought we were just kind of looking at our watches going from scene to scene. This movie's two hours and like 45 minutes. Like this is one of his maybe his one of his longest films next to like Hateful Eight. And it's just a lot of doing this. (laughs) <laughs> just a lot of like going from from like scene to scene villa to villa and i'll tell you when i really noticed this and i was like this film might be in trouble it was after um uh, cliff booth brad pitt dropped off dalton at his house and he went home and we followed his drive from the hollywood hills cielo drive all the way to the van nuys uh movie theater and we're watching him, you know, he was just, it's the soundtracks fill, which by the way, the soundtracks, again, is really good. Like a lot of these songs in the movie, especially uh, one uh, towards the end there. But we were watching everything, like drive, drive around the movie theater, get out of the car, going to his thing, play with his dog. And then I was like, and, and the TV's on. And then he gets his dog, he feeds his dog uh, some, some dog food. He makes himself some macaroni. This is like... T- 10 minutes and they're, he's, he's talking to the dog, but there's like not an engaging conversation where, you know, go to Jackie Brown, you know, they're watching chicks with machine guns. They're, they're talking about something. We're learning that Ordell's a gun runner. Lewis just got out of jail. This and that. Like, it's going somewhere. They're, they're doing something. Like, here, they're just, we're just watching them live their lives, which I don't go to a Tarantino movie to see that. I go to see the interesting dialogue that two characters or a group will will have together not to see characters silent by themselves i noticed we were in trouble in this moment here i think you're right yeah Uh, we agree in this regard Mm -hmm. the fact that al pacino shows up as the jewish film magnate Mm -hmm. is so and i said it last week and i really mean it this week Mm -hmm. so lazy Mm -hmm. it's like he couldn't quite be bothered to create an interesting character so he creates Schwarz instead of Schwartz. And we get a little shtick on that because he mispronounces his name that shows two things. Mm-hmm. That Leonardo DiCaprio's character isn't probably as well-versed in the world of cinema as he should be. Because that guy, is, as Al Pacino, is a bit offended. Yeah. And secondly, of course he casts him as the Jewish guy. You know why? Because mm-hmm. most of Tarantino's stuff was done with the Weinsteins. Mm-hmm. Now, this guy's not as big as bastard as the Weinsteins are. Mm-hmm. But again, it's so on the nose mm-hmm. that for all of the criticisms that I levied against Hans Landa in Inglorious Bastards, mm-hmm. that character is 20 times more creative and original and introspective than mm-hmm. this schlockily thrown together. Uh, I need a producer to kind of introduce Leonardo DiCaprio's character to his failing career. So uh, let's make him a dude. It just was such... On the nose, contrived. And then to what you said earlier, yeah. which is where we're just watching him drive and we're watching him put two cans of dog food in the dog dish. And we're watching Leonardo DiCaprio run his lines in the pool with his recorder. And we're watching Margot Robbie just 
be pretty and light and likable, which mm. those are nice traits, yeah. but there's zero development. The movie plays out for 45 minutes yeah. till the movie really starts yeah. as sort of a photo album mm-hmm. of a foregone era yeah. of Hollywood and what people's hair and clothes used to look like. And, and you know how I feel about American Hustle. Yeah. And we're bordering into that territory yeah. for me. Visually, I think it looks good. I think you know, you know, the, the neon, the the, uh, the 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 style, the that aesthetic is just—it's so on point. I mean, he 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 never falters in that research for his films. That they're very, they're done very well. But like that—that—that's it in this this oh, most of the movie <laughs> is is just kind of looking at how beautiful the scene. I like how you said very revenant, like because that's what that movie is. Is Two hours and thirty minutes of very beautiful scenery, and it is some of the most beautiful scenery I've ever seen on film. But I don't want to see it for an hour, like just establishing shots. I wish Tarantino would have a little bit more respect for the audience patience. Mm-hmm. The movie was, like you said, two hours and forty-five minutes long. There was enough material in that for maybe an hour. Mm-hmm. There's about ten minutes of actual. This is what the story is going. It's almost like. He has <clears throat> zero regard for the audience's patience insofar as it only matters when he wants to familiarize them with the video store rental club VIP nostalgia cards mm-hmm. that he passes out so ham-handedly after torturing the audiences with the glory of yesteryears and film. I don't want to be part of your club. Mm-hmm. I get that you have access to a foregone era. How is it, though, Mm -hmm. that A Kiss of Death is a period piece in film and no one will touch it for the fact that it just feels like it's all set in 18 boring? Yeah. And he picks, like, the two most on-the-nose contrived eras, post or pre, like, World War II era, Mm -hmm. pre-post, and 1969, and gets away with it. I don't... I don't have well, a lot of... It's because he has the get-out-of-jail-free card. I mean, he's got carte blanche to have final cut on his film, to have it be as long as he wants, and they're not going to tell him no. But... So you go from bell-bottom pants and the Manson's family's cut-off shorts, and all of the time that he puts into setting up the aesthetic, as you said, to make it look like 1969, mm-hmm. and forgets... Yeah. ...to do what he's good at, which is give us some interesting dialogue, or hey, even tell us a story. Oh, it's just backdrop. And then, it's just backdrop. And then one well thing, said. one thing I thought he was going to do pretty well, and we kind of saw. We actually saw Damian Lewis as Steve McQueen, which I thought that was pretty good cast. He kind of looked like him eerily enough. Yeah, he did. When he kind of dabbles in this kind of revisionist history that he's done with Inglorious and um, you know, uh, you know, films like that, is kind of giving caricatures of like these figures, like Joseph uh, Goebbels. Yeah. I thought we could have seen more of that in the film, like kind of like these act, like like a McQueen, maybe maybe some other like names that we'd recognize to kind of fill our supporting cast. We get that later, kind of, with Charles Manson, but like if you're in Hollywood, we could have seen more of you know who was kind of there, you know, at the time, you know, your Dustin Hoffman's and John Voights and 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 things like that. Which makes, gives me pause even back more to the Al Pacino character. Yeah. Why didn't he just cast him as David O. Selznick mm-hmm. or, you know, put in, plug in whatever real magnate that happened to be of Jewish 
1969. Instead of a made-up one. Yeah. I mean, because there's enough side fodder 1969 material. Like, we can talk about Mannix offhandedly. We can talk about Audie Murphy. There's different pieces of nostalgia that he weaves in sort of to create the mood. Yeah. Except with what you just said. Steve McQueen and a essentially cameo appearance Mm -hmm. for um, Damian Lewis. Yeah. Roman Polanski, who's in the movie for exactly, I think, three scenes. Yeah. And one of them, he throws the Look, ball to his dog. Looking and like takes Austin off. Powers when they go to the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> oh, that's weird that you said that. I thought the same thing, too. <laughs> and that, that scene could... Where's Hugh Hefner in that scene? Where's Hugh... That's what I'm getting at. Like, yeah. The choices that he makes yeah. are so strange and and then they get too obscure where I don't know who that person is. And I think it, it's self-congratulatory. No, it, it definitely is. And I think a lot of his films are that. It's just that usually that there's a driving force in these films to get behind. Plot to kill Hitler. Let's 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 get this money back from Cabo. Let's kill uh, let's kill this guy in this deathproof car. Yeah. Let's go save your wife, Django. Here, I don't know what we're doing. I'm, Let me get you a role in this. I want to be your stuntman, Rick, and you should go do these spaghetti westerns. Okay, this what? is the perfect setup. You just put this <laughs> on the tee for me. So, uh, we're about 35 minutes into the podcast, mm-hmm. and we've gotten to very little story. Because there is none. Well, it's a very, very simple story. This is this is the thinnest plot he's had in any of his films. So let me give you a little bit of an exercise here. One of the more difficult things to come up with is something called a logline. Mm-hmm. Now, a logline is a one-sentence description that you give as maybe like an elevator pitch to somebody yeah. that intrigues them hooks them and explains the movie to your potential audience so mm-hmm. i'm going to give you a chance now yeah what is your log line for this film an actor and his stunt double tried to wade through 60s hollywood to find a job and oh the manson family like that's a mouthful like i can't do it in a sentence it's hard to come up with that just cold like that mm-hmm and I would actually say that you're trying to build more in that logline than the film is. Because to me, it's something as simple as uh, amidst the dying embers of a once promising career in Hollywood, Rick Dalton finds the second biggest break of his life when he discovers his next door neighbor is Roman Polanski. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <clears throat> if that's your logline, I guess it's a movie about... Him trying to meet Roman Polanski? No, it's not. Well, like, no, that's what that—that's what the no. logline is, but that's not what the movie is. No, yeah. So, <laughs> or, or, and again, this is just sort of done quickly, and these are really difficult to do, so maybe we come up with a different logline, but I think that's pretty close. Yeah. It's about a guy trying to resurrect his career. Yeah. Okay, so for these loglines to work, or if they work, it's usually an indication of you have what is Hollywood gold known as a high concept mm-hmm. movie idea. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before. High concept is widely appealing, unique, and you can see the whole film in one sentence. Yeah. So I'm going to give you a couple different log lines and let's see if you can name the movies for me. Okay. Okay. Here's the first one. To keep afloat the financial lifeblood of coastal Amity Bay, police chief Martin Brody will have to overcome two things. His crippling fear of water and the 300-pound great white shark that's using it as a human feeding ground. It's Jones. 
it's JAWS. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this log line mm -hmm. hinges on one of the core tenets of high concept themes, and that's impossible obstacles. Mm -hmm. Create a movie with impossible obstacles. I'll also give you Alien. I could give you Endgame. Mm -hmm. I could even, in a weird sort of way, like Fright Night. Yeah. Okay, so those all kind oh, of Oh, Fright Night, super high concept. Very high concept. Mm -hmm. what, what, would, what would you do if he found out your new next door neighbor was a vampire? Exactly. <laughs> That's it. Okay, so you just got to the next one. And this is, uh, I think, where this movie probably most fits. Mm -hmm. And this is the concept uh, that I want to give you. Mm -hmm. What if someone offered you $1 million for a night with your wife? What movie is Indecent that? Indecent Proposal. Indecent Proposal. Mm -hmm. That's the what if yep. logline. Another example would be from this podcast, mm -hmm. Double Indemnity. I would even say The Hangover. What if you woke up and couldn't remember the night before only to discover a tiger and a baby and a tattoo have shown up among you and your four best friends, mm -hmm. three best friends? Yeah. What if? This is maybe a what if your next door neighbor was Roman Polanski. And I like that as a logline. Like, it sounds good when you told it to me, but... Literally, that only plays out, no joke, in the final scene of the, of the movie. Which by then you're pulling your hair out going like, what the fuck? <laughs> I think that's really disappointing because what if, as a concept, is something that we all play. What if mm -hmm. you could rob a bank and get away with it, Jesse? Mm -hmm. What if you had one last meal? Mm -hmm. What if you were on a plane and you knew it was going to crash? We all play what if. Mm -hmm. And What some... if the plan to kill Adolf Hitler actually worked? Right. Yeah. Okay, so let me give you another one. I think you'll love this one. Okay. I wrote this just for you. Okay. Four experts in paranormal phenomena have just been given the job interview of a lifetime. In order to keep it, they'll have to keep the earth from supernatural Armageddon. Meet the Ghostbusters. Yep. Super high concept. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is another concept into high conceptedness. Mm -hmm. And this is an introduction to unique professions. Yeah. I would also say Showgirls, although that's a terrible film. <laughs> But also up in the air. Yeah. Like interesting jobs. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's watch them do interesting jobs. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the fourth and final one, and there's like 10 of these. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm just going with a few more. Okay, here's the last one. Suicide and retirement make for a poor partnership. It's something Detective Riggs and Murtaugh will have to overcome in order to keep a clandestine drug cartel from overtaking the streets of L.A. That's lethal what? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the opposing forces have to unite. This is grumpy old men. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can go on and on with the different aspects of society sort of coming together. Yeah. All of those create a high concept movie idea because they work on a simple premise, which are any of those four things that I named. Yeah. This seems simple enough because it's a man trying to revive his career when he finds out that his next door neighbor is Roman Polanski. The problem, though, is mm -hmm. the movie until I think the closing, man, maybe 30 seconds, has nothing to do with him tracking down Roman Polanski. Or being, yeah, go, going, being invited there, anything like that. Instead, we're wasting time on set for a pilot, a new Western pilot called Lancer, mm -hmm. that isn't doing anything except continually re-showing the audience mm -hmm. that this guy's career is on life support. Yeah. Except for the moment mm -hmm. that it's not on life support, which is when he kind of gets it together after he beats himself up verbally yeah. in the the trailer yeah. over his drinking. Yeah. <sighs> hey, at least that's some conflict. <laughs> well, then that should be the movie. Yeah. Let's watch this actor 
chase off every gig that comes his way because he's so bad at it. But that's not really the movie either. And you know what? And I, th- I thought the movie got it was gonna like. I was like, oh my gosh, we're getting we're getting a little good here when you know we're kind of getting a little bit of Cliff Booth's backstory and he maybe killed his wife. Most likely did kill his wife uh, on this boat, and so he's not trusted on film sets. That's a tension that we can play with with the, their career trajectory. No, that's followed up with some more driving through the Los Angeles streets. What you just did is a conversation that I have with myself all the time. I play this game. When, when Jesse and I are in, in the writing and the pitching space, mm-hmm. one of the things I do is I practice the pitch in my head, and then I play out the response from the person I'm pitching to as to what they <clears> would say to me. So let me walk you through the conversation that I'm having in my head right now about this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I'm in the elevator, and I'm talking to a potential producer, and I say... I have a movie about a guy whose career in Hollywood is on life support until he discovers that his next door neighbor is Roman Polanski and the way to him is through his wife, yeah. Sharon Tate. So I say that and then my response to myself is, oh, so you have a love triangle movie. And then my response to myself is, no, 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 it's actually a thriller. Mm-hmm. Think more along the lines of drama. So then the response from the producer would be, oh, so like Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but more uh, like buddy movie. Oh, so kind of like a film version of Ray Donovan. Yeah, but not that heavy. So do you mean like... And now it's gone. Yeah. And I, I have that conversation with myself a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's been a while since you and I have gone and pitched. But yeah. we, we're we pretty good at it. Yeah. And it's it's because you try to troubleshoot what the producer is going to tell you because they just yeah. want to tell you no. Yeah. So here's all the things that this movie ends up not being. Because mm-hmm. I thought you brought up a really good point. Mm-hmm. Okay, this could be a buddy movie. Yeah. It's a, except for about half the film. Yeah. They forget Brad Pitt's even in it. Yeah. And, the, and when they're together, I think they actually, I think they play off each other pretty well. Like, it was it was nice seeing them together. But then, let's kind of get to the middle of the movie, which is an hour and 15 minutes. God. <laughs> and there's uh, a lot we miss, but there isn't. There's not really, you're just watching him on set. Well, yeah, we're just skipping the miscellaneous scenes of Sharon Tate. Okay, so the middle of this movie is just totally insane. So... We have three things going on. We have Leonardo DiCaprio on the set of Lancer, flubbing about his lines and having a tantrum in his in his thing. Have, yeah. Like just these long conversations with the actors and this and that for a long time. We have Cliff Booth picking up uh, some hippie on the side of the road who's a member of the Manson uh, cult family. And they drive off to Spawn's movie ranch, which I just got to say real quick. I want to talk about a little bit of some of the stuff in, in that scene. But my wife and I just recently watched this documentary about um, Manson. And the shit at the Spawn's Movie Ranch is insane. It's very creepy and really kind of like, ooh. So when we were going there, I was like, I wonder how this is going to kind of play out. And like tonally, I was like, there was an interesting vibe that, you know, that Cliff Booth had when he kind of went in looking for the guy that that owned it. I it got a little Texas Chainsaw for me. A little Hills Have Eyes. I was like, there's, there's an interesting tone here, but then it just goes nowhere. And then the third one, and this is just like they just didn't. Sharon Tate's just there, just to be there, just to kind of remind you that oh yeah, this is happening at the same time. We see her drive, pick up another someone. She drives to the theater to go watch her movie. So then we end up watching her. We're watching. 
a movie of a character watching a movie that they're watching. That makes you like a triple voyeur. You're sick. Yeah, that's it, it's making me sick because I'm not getting. And I think this is the point in the film when I turn to you. Matt and I went to see this together last night. This is the point when I turned to you and I and then I said, "You just this is like the the this would be my review critique of the film." Tarantino's best asset is his dialogue. It's it's the gift he was given to just yeah. write very eloquent uh, monologues. Right. And I turned to you and I was like, "He's not using his best asset." We're watching people walk from scene, drive to scene, watching them watch TV, watching them watch movies. And I'm just wondering what's what's happening. It does, it, this is the the most un-Tarantino feeling movie in his entire filmography. It's so great to hear you say those three things that you just brought up mm-hmm. about 45 seconds ago. Yeah, because it goes back to what the movie is not. Yeah. Okay. It's not a buddy movie, mm-hmm. although it could be. Yeah. It it's not <clears throat> an interesting exploration of the Manson family. Because they're not in it enough to really be explored, no. save the scene that you just mentioned, which no. is a good scene yeah. or sequence. Mm-hmm. It's not the rise and fall of Hollywood careers, which could be done brilliantly as we watch Rick's career fade and Sharon Tate's career rise. I thought they were they were kind of alluding to that oh, at the beginning. It should have been, Jesse, but again, we're spending so much time watching nothing having to do with story as Rick just sort of screws around on set or Brad Pitt fixes a television antenna that we're not driving any of those narratives. It's also, and you just mentioned all that, Mm -hmm. it's not a love letter to Sharon Tate. Yeah. Because of all the characters, she's, look, Margot Robbie comes on the screen Mm -hmm. and she's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So she's really easy to look at. Yeah. There's no Betty Davis or Kristen Ritter discussion. Margot Robbie's just beautiful. God bless Margot Robbie. Indeed. Yeah. But she's presented in one way, which is shoeless yeah. and happy. Yeah. So kind of hollow. Okay, so maybe there's an interesting juxtaposition between her and the women of the Manson. No, no, we don't get that played out either. But just think about it. So I, I, don't, in, I don't want to throw you off of what, what you're about to say here, but no, just, no. just kind of compare that to like every other film that he's made. Reservoir Dogs. Got to find out who the rat is that screwed up this heist. Right. Um, uh, Jackie Brown. Like we got to like creating like, the plan. Creating the plan. Kill Bill. I got to find my daughter. I got to kill Bill. Like even 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 Hateful Eight is as and and where you're gonna see Hateful Eight fall on 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 my ranking later is gonna maybe be interesting to you. But single location. There's a powder cake of tension in there to see who's gonna snap first and at least there's kind of something moving about within that location here there's nothing moving about last one could be a fixer who saves his buddy uh from screwing himself over any of those would be really interesting movie ideas Mm -hmm. and we don't get any of that instead what we get is a look back in the photo album of a forgotten time once upon a time in hollywood that celebrates what once was Mm -hmm. and sadly isn't anymore for the reasons that we spoke about in the beginning of the podcast and just the development of technology. Which that's cool. That's a cool backdrop. I love seeing the neon, the Cinerama uh, dome, uh, the the movie posters in, in the like. I love all the decoration. The film's going to win the Oscar for production design. It's it's immaculate. But let's be plotting something around that. Yeah. Let's be plotting a heist. Let's be plotting some type of like scheme or the grand plan of the David O. Selznick. Al Pacino character to keep 
film going alive mm-hmm. through other interests and other things that's being wiped out and this is his grand plan to keep it going like any of those I know you don't like this film, but, like, it's another Elmore Leonard vehicle. Like, something even, like, Get Shorty. Like, my God. Oh, no, no. I don't... uh, Sure. Yeah. That's great. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it just isn't any of those things. Okay, so that's my little my little bit on that I'll let, let's get back to this yeah story. but this was like this kind of uh, it was when I turned to you there I was like I don't know if I'm on board with this film like the things that I've kind of talked about that I really enjoy about seeing his films the last two weeks with Jackie Brown and Glorious are just totally absent from this film yeah he, he could have used a, a, a title chapter cards to kind of help break the action maybe we could have had self-contained story he should have just done an anthology of 1969's Hollywood with just little vignettes of of people from this era. Jesse, wouldn't a better story be strained Rick, what the hell's his last name? Dalton. Rick Dalton's movie career becomes even more endangered when his stuntman assistant that everyone recognizes and the best in the industry is discovered to have killed his wife because now there's tension in the relationship between the two friends and another obstacle for them to climb over for Rick to stay relevant in Hollywood. That's perfect. And that, sh- that, that should have been more like a, a little, I think I'm kind of like maybe sour mashing this film already, which we've done before is take the parts that kind of are there and kind of turn it into something better. Like do like just like a, a 30, 40 minute bit on that. Yeah, with all just, with all that dressing, if you want to do the Manson, have have them like take some has been actor and they take him to the Spawn's movie range. Like that's a part of the movie. Tackle like one other totally different. Like the problem is that all these things intertwine, and I and then I wonder like why. Just so we can get this insane finale at the end, which by the end you're just like at least something exciting's happening, but this is totally preposterous. All of these little things that we're bringing up actually do show up in the film, mm-hmm. but are really, really underplayed and have no significance. Because you just said another one that I thought would have been an interesting way to tell this story last night, too. Mm. Uh, they're both pretty hard drinking. Yeah. So at a bar one night, and we see Brad Pitt as uh, Cliff Booth mm-hmm. take a shine to one of the Manson family's uh, members. Her name's Pussycat. Mm-hmm. Pretty early on in the movie, and she keeps just happening to show up in L.A. at every street corner that he drives past. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so he rolls on her. Mm-hmm. Like, rolls up on her. I don't mean rolls on her, but yeah. like rolls up on her. Mm-hmm. And they begin some tawdry little thing, and she introduces him to the family, and then he says, hey, I have a guy who's really interested in film, and mm-hmm. then he introduces them to the next-door neighbor of Rick, which is the Tate, uh, Sharon Tate, and then we have, oh my God, I'm the reason that these people were murdered. Yeah, that's an even better story. Or even what could have been good there is, you know, just kind of introducing that element. You know, I'm going to take you to go to see my family, and we're kind of doing the Hitchcock thing where when we see Spawn's movie, we kind of, oh, this isn't just some family. This is like some fucked up family. Uh, the yeah. character does the lead doesn't know that, but we do, and they could play yeah. with that a little bit yeah. more, but. He goes. He go to the movie ranch. Everyone's freaking weird and bizarre as they were, and then has this interesting moment. Where, like I, again, it like ventured into horror, and I was like, mm-hmm. I sat up a little bit, apart from like like slouching because I was like, <laughs> kind, kind, kind of a little bored. Yeah. yeah, has this interesting moment with the uh, I think is George Spawn played by Bruce Stern, who's just kind of just like they're just taking advantage of him left and right. 
And, you know, it, it, they could have kind of played with that. But, oh, gosh, it's just kind of like a ploy to, you know, just kind of get back out of there and have some guy fix his, uh, his flat tire and this and that. And then, and then it pays off in the end when they show up, like we won't spoil too much, but they show up at the, at the house there and he says, well, I know you guys, wasn't your name Rex or Tex or this and that? This scene then has no purpose other than to kind of have that one moment where he recognizes these three people. So then uh, Rick finally, you know, is kind of makes some headway on the show Lancer. He has kind of a breakthrough moment. Uh, uh, Cliff Booth escapes, you know, the the clutches of the Manson family. Sharon Tate's still, you know, being very beautiful in the, the film. Yeah. But they finally make the decision to, I'm going to go do these spaghetti westerns in, in Italy. And then we get some narration by my guy, Kurt Russell, who's in the film earlier, but then kind of wasted too. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, I think a lot of, like, the actors and people in here are kind of, their talents are just not used. Okay, you said three things there that are so important. Mm-hmm. Eventually... The Manson Trio mm-hmm. shows up to do their their bidding. Yeah. We get a return of one of the characters that mattered earlier, Tex. Mm-hmm. But why isn't Pussycat included I in don't that trio? Know. Yeah, we, she, we get three new ones. Right. Well, Tex isn't totally new, but two new girls. Well, oh, there was three, and the other one takes off in the car. Which, by the way, is Uma Thurman's daughter, and is only in there long enough for us to recognize as Uma Thurman's daughter, <clears> so she can then run away. She's actually in all of Stranger Things season three. Is she? Yeah. So there's that. And then, man, talk about wasting character. I think you talked last week about Kurt Russell's character might being the brother. Yeah, Stuntman Bob. To Stuntman Bob. He's not. (laughs) Here's what I don't understand. Yeah. It takes forever in terms of this movie screen time to watch Rick's career fade out to get to the spaghetti westerns that's proposed to him in the first three minutes. Two hours and ten minutes, maybe? Yeah. Forever. And none of that is the story. Mm-hmm. And then once the spaghetti western bit ends, we sum up the next six months in a three-minute dialogue voiceover that gets everybody up to speed so that we can hurry and get to, oh, yeah, remember the Manson thing? Let me give you some conclusion to that, it's, some closure. Yeah. Talk about terrible pacing. Mm-hmm. We were, I when you all see this film, mm-hmm. I don't say anybody take a stopwatch and, but pay close attention to how much time of this movie we're on set watching an you're watching an actor act mm-hmm. in a movie mm-hmm. that's a pilot, yeah, which has nothing to do. With what this is, because this isn't really a movie about a guy's career dying. Now, it tries to be again at the end, and he saves it at the end. Mm -hmm. But, man, that's all I got. Yeah, so so we're here, and then Kurt Russell's narration is kind of leading us up to the events by time. Um, You know, Sharon Tate and the players, the actual people that were in the house that night that all, all that went down in actual history... Um, juxtaposed with uh, Cliff and uh, and uh, and Rick, you know, going to their own Mexican restaurant and just getting blitzed on margaritas, and then you know, it got, got, me, and you, and I were we were laughing in the theater when when the 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 the, the Manson uh, henchmen, you know, show up in their thing and he's yelling at them with his uh, blender of margaritas, like 
I was like, oh my god, the movie's making a turn here. Like we needed more of this. And then it just gets and then it just gets too ridiculous. And by then, like we're just like we're just waiting for the film to end because we've been here for so long. And I think we're just excited that something's happening. Yeah. All right, so let's let's kind of get to it. So Brad Pitt, um, he's earlier has gotten this uh, acid laced cigarette that he decides to smoke. Well, takes his dog for a walk, comes back, and he's he's tripping as they're invading. Now this did they go to the wrong house or were they, did they meant to go to this house? No, they went to the wrong house because they were supposed to go to the Tate residence, which was in pursuit of Candace Bergen. Yes, who no longer lived there. Mm-hmm. Now we get that earlier in the film with Manson. So yeah, they just make a wrong turn or yeah. pick the wrong driveway. Yeah, so they they go into this house. You know, he's got his his pit bull, and he's tripping, and then the, uh, Leo's Italian wife's there, and he's out listening to music in 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 his pool to have this kind of uber violent kind of takedown of these these manson people uh to remind us that it is tarantino to have again that cartoonish violent i mean when he threw that he threw throws a can of dog food at one of these people it just like smashes her face it was mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of gross but like again it's car- it's it's oh i'm checking my box like i did i think i did in the jackie brown episode he, here's like eight things to look out for Oh, I get to check one of those off like in this film at two hours and 30 minutes into the film. Right. So they're disposed of and then very cartoonishly Leo takes care of the last one in the pool with, with his flamethrower. Which, which he was, just happens to have in his yeah, shed. Yeah, which was shown earlier from one of his World War II Grindhouse, Grindhouse his films. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. this is just kind of the conclusion of the film. We have to accept it because this is this is the end. But it very it's built up very poorly. I don't know if you know you talk about setups and payoffs. Is this a setup and a payoff? It's just another scene and like a ridiculous action happening. Well, I wanted to talk about another setup that you brought up, which is that acid laced cigarette. Okay. So basically, the idea is now that Rick has come back from his Italian movie foray mm-hmm. and has enough money to sort of make it work he's got his nice little new wife and he's going to i think essentially retire from hollywood at least until the next pilot season comes around and yep. they measure what's left of his career yeah that means he can't pay for cliff so they're going to have to part ways so as kurt russell says in the voiceover that was forementioned, mm-hmm. they're going to get blind drunk because that's a nice way to finish off this friendship yeah okay i actually understand that and then we get the introduction or the payoff Mm -hmm. to this acid lace cigarette that Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth has has previously bought from one of the Manson family members, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming, earlier in the movie. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the payoff for that acid lace cigarette is we get to watch him struggle with the effects of tripping. Mm -hmm. And it comes across as just really bad schlocky comedy. It's too much. It's like five minutes of it. Well, there's... It, it it's almost just a burden when the Mansons show up, the Manson family shows up, because he's got to get past what's reality and what isn't because of the acid lace cigarette. And I, it had no point, like a lot of things in this movie for me, <laughs> of even being in the movie. Yeah. If the Manson family isn't in this movie, yeah, you still get the same movie. Yeah. Here's what's even crazier. Yeah. If Tate slash Polanski aren't in this movie. Mm-hmm. You still get the same movie. Yeah. 
because the movie is about watching a guy struggle with his own limitations in the harsh face of reality. Ripped that right off mm-hmm. from Almost Famous. Mm-hmm. But it's watching it's watching Rick struggle as a shitty actor. That's or, what this movie is. Or Tate and Emmer still in the movie in this final scenes like we realize that his next door neighbors Sharon Tate and we're like oh we know how that story turns out the uh except not in this movie because yeah. that's the revisionist history that he likes to do yeah that the violence that you're talking about when Brad Pitt and his dog who kind of ends up being the star of the movie <laughs> yeah Brandy Chris right. Pitbull and then the flamethrower bit in the pool is mm-hmm. Rick torches the surviving Manson family member who's acting like a weirdo just with her arms up flailing and screaming for 20 minutes. Wasn't she the one that got smashed with the dog food? Yes, and then ran through the glass and just running around. So there's moments of like like intentional comedy that get a chuckle out of us, but like the road to get to all of this is just like, ugh. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, go ahead. Do you like a comedic depiction with something that has the gravity... Of the Manson murders, because it was really, and not to play it was, provincial Matt, but really off-putting to me, well, and completely was, out of. It was too comedic, like like yeah, when he bashes her head into fifteen thousand things before smashing he, this woman. Like I thought it was okay. It was okay when my Maya Hawk, Uma Thurman, and the, their daughter when she goes and gets in the car and then like leaves them. Like that's a moment of like. What are you doing? You're leaving us here without a way to get out. Like that's a moment of, of, of appropriate comedy, and it's kind of like Inglorious Bastards too. You know, we're like they're just like pummeling bullets into like Hitler's face, like like here. But I think it's handled better in that film than here. Like here, it's just it's just yeah. Like it was a little off putting, and I was I was inter- I was most interested to see how this film dealt with the ramifications of the Sharon Tate murders and this and that and I don't want to see some revisionist version of that sequence which I'm glad he had the restraint to not redo not that. that yeah but yeah it was just I don't know like it was off-putting but like read two hours and 40 minutes in this thing and I'm just like I think we're almost over and and like and why like mm-hmm. it's been a long journey to get to these very unrelated kind of interconnected sequences to get to a finale that's such it pales in comparison to a finale like Django Unchained and Glorious Bastards. Let's let me do is, that. Is this, is this worse than the finale of Jackie Brown where they just shoot him in there? Oh yeah. Cause yeah. By, by a mile. Yeah. So the three Manson assassins are disposed of and we get the aftermath, which is Shockingly, Brad Pitt has come to a position of sobriety and worked out of his uh, LSD-induced acid cigarette trip. Leo's come to a more sober place, and we get the cops cleaning up the murders and all of the debris, if you will, from the showdown. Mm -hmm. And then we finally get the penultimate conclusion, right? The moment, which is one of Sharon Tate's house guests appears at the fence that separates her house from Rick's house. This should have been Roman Polanski. Of and no it, shit. Or just like, this is finally... Because the- like we're going to adhere to the history that he actually wasn't there at this time. Give me a break, Quentin. But, but it instead, sh- it's, it's... But it, we could have played with something set up that if I get past that gate to be in the same vein with Polanski, maybe I can get in his next film. And now this is that moment to have him open up. 
that actually is mentioned really early in the film like oh my career is on the rocks and look here my next door neighbor is Roman Polanski yeah. the hottest director and then it's not really dealt with the rest of the film yeah Okay, so Emil Hirsch shows up. He's mm-hmm. one of her house guests when he was off shooting, a, when Polanski is off shooting a film abroad. Mm-hmm. Kind of have a brief conversation. What happened? He says, oh, these hippies showed up and they were weird and they tried to, did they, everything okay, go okay? And not for the hippies. Haha, a couple like, you know, little comedic moments that were actually pretty funny. I have to admit that I was laughing, you know, chuckling. And then we get Sharon Tate on the speaker mm-hmm. inviting Rick up to her house to have a drink and begin the friendship between neighbor and neighbor. Mm-hmm. The movie fades out and I literally put my head in my hands. I couldn't believe that was the end of this film. Yeah, it's that that's really the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. He walks up the driveway with Emil Hirsch, and I don't even know what character that was. Yeah. In the He was tape. he was some barber hairdresser. Person. One of the people that the Mansons really did kill. Yeah. One of the piggies. Mm-hmm. And they walk up her steep driveway together to go, I guess, break bread and... Have a drink. Rekindle his career because that's what this movie wasn't about. No, it's no, it's, it's not a good ending. <laughs> I was frustrated, man. No, I was frustrated too. I think I'm more so myself. Your frustrations have been evident the last two weeks with plotting consistencies and just not getting and taking the long way to get there mm-hmm. i can't imagine i was thinking last night i was like man what, what what's going through matt's head because like for everything that he knocked the last two films for lacking it's just totally non-existent in this film like at all and then that's frustrating me because those things that i like that you tend to be irritated by are not even there either well i hope uh, yeah where's yeah. Where's the 10 minute dialogue scene in this film? You we, did we, get, we could have used one of them. <laughs> we actually didn't mention the only other time that it shows up. And mm. that's on set of Lancer when he has a discussion with an eight year old <clears throat> little girl who is just so but, precocious and so aware okay, of so, the craft of acting that it's just. This is, where you, this is where you went to the bathroom. So when you left to the bathroom, you know what they were talking about? Mm-hmm. They were talking about the book he was. Walt Disney. The book, no, the book he was reading, which was this Western about this character that was kind of like who he was as an actor. And it was just <laughs> 10 minutes of just talking about these books. And it's just, they're just sitting on, on a set. You know, have you ever, you know, okay, one woman thing. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever, you've been on a film set before. Sure, yeah. It's the most boring, boring thing. Unless you're the one calling the shots and you actually have some stake in like trying to get, if you've ever been an extra on a film. Oh. Arduously boring. Can think of a days. more boring kind of like thing to do. I agree. That's what it's like watching these sequences. After the newness of I'm on set wears off, you're like, fuck, I'm on set, and I've st- I'm, I'm still I'm on still set. here. I'm still and background. I'm still. It's sitting. eleven o'clock at midnight. They haven't called us yet. Yeah, that's what it's like watching these sequences. We're like on these sets, watching things happen. You know, it was a really odd moment in this film too. This is going back a bit, mm. but it's sort of around this point. The little girl that he meets on set is basically explaining to him why she wants to go the extra mile to respect her craft and be better at her craft. <coughs> and it kind of lights a fire under him, especially after he comes on the next scene and forgets all his lines. Yeah. And then he comes back after that, mm-hmm. the reborn Rick, Yeah. and just kills it yeah. in the scene. And you know what his reward for killing it is? He still runs off to Italy. 
to make those spaghetti westerns, and I will pose this question. Yeah. Again, we've beat this horse to death, so I'm going to just give it one more good kick. Mm-hmm. What was the point of all of that if even when he was a good actor, he still ran off to do spaghetti westerns? And, and not even that, too, because what gets him the call to do the spaghetti westerns is they're watching that FBI show that he's on. Yep. Is when he gets the call from Pacino. No, it's it's too fragmented to be any type of co- of a coherent story, but that's a seminal moment for him because the little girl says that's the best acting I've ever seen. The director comes up and congratulates him. Oh my god, that it's, was the Dark Hamlet. You were sexy Dark Hamlet. And it, it's good. It's good. I'm I'm like I'm feeling something. I'm like I'm I'm kind of getting into like what his character. He's this is what he's wanted. Let's see where they play with this. No, I, they go home and they watch FBI and we watch them watch a TV show. It's it's <laughs> what's really starting to bother me about Tarantino. And it's the showcasing of characters for no other purpose than him telling the audience, I know how to manipulate this to get exactly what I want. Mm -hmm. I can make these set pieces. I can make this look like 1969. I can show you good Leo and bad Leo. And in the process of all of that, what he forgets is the essential thing with all of film. And that's come up with a cogent, Mm -hmm. linear story it doesn't even have to be linear oh no i mean at least that there's like, there's something fruition in stars beginning middle and end this film should have taken the pulp fiction route because that's not a linear story right. but it's vignettes within yeah. uh a pulpy crime-ridden los angeles we could have had vignettes in a star-studded la manson crime thing no we get it all and it's all jumbled and it just none of it, it like None of it, it has any consequence at the at the end of the day. Here's my weekly theory. Can I give it to you? Go ahead. The turning point for me mm-hmm. in Tarantino's career yeah. has everything to do with Death Proof, but not the movie Death Proof. Mm-hmm. The fake trailers that he's so over-the-toply done in a comedic but yet celebratory way mm-hmm. that was machete and Thanksgiving or whatever the other oh, ones were. Oh, I love thing, uh, Eli Roth the Thanksgiving. We all, yeah. yeah. That B-movie trailer schlock mm-hmm. that he put in that film as, I don't want to say a one-off, but a four-off because there's four trailers. Yeah. I don't think he's ever graduated past that point in his film career. Well, he, his, should, he should have gotten all that out of his system with the Grindhouse Opus. That's what I'm saying. Is he did that, and it's almost like it lit a fire in him that continues still to barely smolder. Mm-hmm. And for all of the things that B movies are, yeah, Faster Pussycat, uh, Kill Kill, Vanishing Point, and Billy Jack mm-hmm. are still <laughs> Billy Jack. pretty shitty films. Yeah, none of them are good, but they have like a charm to them. Ah, yeah. But that charm, mm-hmm. like I mentioned, three films. Yeah. And done in a sparse sprinkling. Yeah. They're enduring. Mm-hmm. Endearing, not yeah. enduring. Yeah. You have to endure them, but yeah. they're endearing. Mm-hmm. His entire career yeah. has been finding a way to celebrate B-movie schlock or a as ge- a movie production value. Yeah. A, a, a typical genre. He's just stalled out. Yeah. Everything is a knockoff of Machete. Mm-hmm. Yes, especially especially in this one. 
But let's, I guess let's, let's, the movie's over at this point and, and Matt and I are just very like, what did we watch? Yeah. Three hours of this? But let's kind of get to it. So let's get to our rating, our rating scale. It's, we have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. I'm going to let you go first because let's see, let's see what you got. It's better than Inglorious Bastards for me. I think you're wrong there. At least there's a... No, just but, like, there's, but there's a plot. At least they're driving to kill Hitler. Like, what are they driving to in this film? Again, the plot in that is so contrived in that three entities all at the same time want to kill the most notorious bad guy of all time in the stupidest way, which has to do with another version of B movies. Mm-hmm. I think that's a stupid story. And but again, I'd it, rat- it takes. Well, hold on, hold on. Yeah, it takes a quintessential villain, an Mm -hmm. iconic villain, and downplays it to comedic stupidity, this does the same thing. At least he was in the movie more. Okay. It's Rot Gut Plus. I I hope I never have to see any of the last three films that we've done again, (laughs) only because Jackie Brown leaves me so perplexed. Yeah. That I I, I just, I don't want to think about that film anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I was really glad when this movie was over. Mm-hmm. I left frustrated. And again, as as we talked about earlier, I'm at a place with him where I kind of think most of his movies are shit. Mm-hmm. And you know, we talk about Kill Bill being, mm-hmm. even though two movies, one movie. Yeah. And we'll get to the nightcap here in yeah, a yeah. little bit. Man, Jesse, here's what's weird about him. He has a, a propensity lately to do what I think are really ridiculous stories with terrific performances. Yeah. Because Leonardo DiCaprio, who sometimes can leave me cold, but mm-hmm. and Brad Pitt, who I mostly like, are both really good in this film. Mm-hmm. And even Margot Robbie for the little bit she's in is... Yeah, she's is, good too. Oh, I mean, for what she is, happy. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't cover up the fact that strong performances wrapped around dog shit is still pretty dog shit. Yeah. And this is just such a stupid story that Quentin Tarantino's films are fairy tale esque. Mm-hmm. Right? Even my favorite vignette from Pulp Fiction, which is The Watch. The Gimp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Watch. Even that's fairy tale esque. It's so preposterous and yep. absurd. But early on, sharp and clever mm-hmm. and edgy. All that's gone away now. Yeah. And it's just fairy tale. And if you're going to give me a fairy tale the way he does, setting is everything. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that there's anything left that's creative in him. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, World War II era France, Mm -hmm. 1969, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's next? I think those are good settings to play with, but like what we're. I mean, the only thing that's. What's next? Is he going to do a movie about Woodstock? Because that seems about in his wheelhouse with contrived times yeah. in our in our history. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, I don't know what else can I say. It, obviously, we beat the crap out of it. Mm-hmm. There's a few comedic moments that I like. The performances by Pitt and DiCaprio are solid. It's the only thing from making it be pure rot gut. And maybe I'll give it call minus. Yeah. Maybe I'll give it call minus. Okay. Um, it's a really expensive, nice looking, nostalgic. Piece of trash. Yeah. Okay, where are you at? Yeah, I think... 
you know, for everything that I've, I really like when I, I look forward to his films and I, I talked about them kind of being events in themselves, like I look forward to them when they come out and you know, I have to go see them as soon as they come out, uh, the, you know, the, between the dialogue and the interesting characters and the cartoonish violence and the soundtracks, these are the elements I look forward to. But what's driving that is some powder keg of a plot that, you know, we're, we're building up to. And this film is just completely devoid of that. You have an element there of the Manson family to kind of play with, but even that peters out in the end in a cartoonish sequence of violence. Yeah, like Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner violence. It was very Looney Tunes-like. I'm glad you said that. Mm -hmm. So for as much as I was excited to see this, I'm shocked in you, Matt, because you would rather see characters drive around beautiful Los Angeles for 18 minutes than at least listen to characters try and progress the plot in Inglorious Bastards. Like, not, literally nothing is happening. We're watching Sharon Tate watch herself on the screen. Mm-hmm. With her feet off, which was really off-putting. Or but, with her feet off, but with it's her shoes we, off. Ugh. But it was, we're in the theater, watching the character in a theater, watching a movie from a bygone era. Yeah, watching a watcher watch, and it's not rear window. No. Um, so, uh, again, the visual aesthetic, the redesigning of 1969's Los Angeles is immaculate. I think the performances, like yourself, are very good. Mm-hmm. To me, that that gets, you know, a well for me. The rest of everything that the film just... Well? Yeah, the, the film, uh, like... Oh, that part of it gets a yeah, well. The, the, everything that the film kind of leaves devoid uh, of that is rock cut. As I'm kind of going to get into it, maybe I'm alluding to my ranking, I think this is Quentin Tarantino's worst film. And that really hurts me because this is what I was most looking forward to in 2019. Man, me and you picked some winners in the first episode, didn't we? no kidding. So to all my friends out there and anybody that knows me that, you know, you like Tarantino as well, for everything that you like about Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained and Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs... This film is totally devoid of all those elements, bar a pretty good soundtrack and some good acting performances. You're going to be hard-pressed to really want to put this one in and, and watch it compared to some of his other films. And I think that's just what it is at the end of the day. I think it's an opportunity wasted. I think he wastes a lot of the actors in it for a story that really just doesn't go nowhere. It's just kind of padded by a very beautiful setting, but... You know, I talked last week, I liked the presentational aesthetic of Tarantino and how he toys with my expectations of how films look. I get that in this film, but when I say that in his other films, I get, you know, that's tied around interesting kind of characters and plots where they're trying to get to something and gain something. Here, that's that's absent. I think you might even be giving it too much credit on the soundtrack. It took some work. To make Urge Overkill matter as they cover Neil Diamond. Mm-hmm. It took some work to dig up Dick Dale. Yeah. It takes some work to dig up Brothers Johnson, Strawberry Letter 23. Mm-hmm. It takes some work to dig up the stuff that in his good soundtracks mm-hmm. are good. This is just pop radio fodder in 1969 that he put on this. I think he actually went to Billboard's Top 100 Maybe. for 1969 and picked five or six songs. <clears throat> there's one again, of the. Yeah. It's effort. Yeah. I just think he's so comfortable in who he is yeah. that he's become lazy. Yeah. And 
it's really playing out yeah. poorly. Yeah, and I, I would just like the song they use in that 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 final kind of sequence with the Mansons attacking Brad Pitt and everybody. Um, is a song by Vanilla Fudge that I actually really like, and when I heard it, I was like, you know, this fits this pretty well. But that's not going to save an entire film. Again, it's at the end, like it's the end of the movie, and it's been a long, arduous trip to get there. For as much as, I guess, quote-unquote, the obscurity of that Vanilla Fudge song is, which it really isn't, Mm -hmm. here's what else I just don't understand about him anymore. I brought it up with the Al Pacino character earlier as the Jewish film magnate that's Schwarz instead of Schwartz. Mm -hmm. It's just a plastic version of what everybody thinks that character should be. Mm -hmm. How in the hell Mm -hmm. is Piggy's... Or Helter Skelter, even covered by somebody else yeah. not playing in that scene. Yeah, I don't know. Or at least in the car as they drive or something, up. something, yeah. Yeah, it's... Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not... This doesn't have a lot of rewatchability with me. It's... There's a lot missing from it that I wanted. And maybe we'll just leave it at that. Okay. So let's get to our flight now that we've spent three... So that's- well minus, and what did you give it? I gave it a kind of well minus for the aesthetic and a rock gut for just everything else that it does. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was... Rough film. It was rough. I was very frustrated when we left last night. I was, I was, I think we were all kind of shell-shocked, but not by, like, the content of the film, but by its lack thereof. Yeah. You told me off mic that you found yourself in the wee hours of the morning sitting there thinking about it. Yeah, so it really I, didn't get, move you. I didn't get a lot of sleep, but I was just kind of thinking, I was like, yeah, man, like, they didn't do that. They wasted that. Like, it's not what I wanted in this. I gonna, yeah. Um, I've never seen the guy that played Manson before. So mm-hmm. um, I thought that was really interesting that they did this with this arduous task to cast this dude as Manson. Yeah. And then he's in it for one scene. Yeah. And uh, the name's escaping me right now. I'll, I'll look it up here in just a second. But he's, and if you haven't seen Mindhunter on Netflix, it was, it's a great show. There's one season, David Fincher and Charlie Theron showrun, actually. Hmm. Uh, but he's ca- he's also cast to play Charles Manson in season two of that show, which comes out in a couple couple weeks. Uh, and they showed a picture. You, man, you talk about Helter Skelter. Like, I think we'll get more of him in there instead of one scene. <laughs> yeah. So let's end with our flight, being that we've spent you know all this time talking about his films and his aesthetic and this and that. Let's do our own personal rankings of where we think his his films lie. So, why don't so you, I'm gonna go nine nine eight eight seven seven. No, six, no, six, let's five. let's just kind of do just all at once. So give me nine through one for you, and then I'll go. The categories break up into three very distinctions, three very um, specific distinctions. The bottom three, the middle three, and the top three. And the bottom three are terrible. Okay? And they are terrible in a way that two of the entries of these bottom three might be in my top 25 least-like films of all time. (laughs) I mean, they're just terrible for me. Okay. Bottom. Okay? The worst one he's done is The Hateful Eight. I hate that film as much as I killed Inglorious Bastards last week. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was so frustrated. I, The Hateful Eight is all of that and stage play boring. The only thing that's missing is Johnny Depp, latter Johnny Depp, and his stage play 
in costume, showing up to be the same character, which is a knockoff Tim Burton dark fellow in a new version of a costume. Like, I just hate that film. Mm-hmm. And Channing Tatum popping up through the floorboards when he's been there the whole time is absurd. <laughs> uh, I'm so over Sam Jackson in that same role. Uh, that's the worst for me. Okay. okay, that's nine. Number eight is Inglorious Bastards. I'm not going to get into that. You can listen to last week. Mm-hmm. This is number seven. Mm-hmm. For all the reasons that we just outlined. Now, it is ahead of those other two films, but that's not... Um, a ringing endorsement. No, because those other two films, like I said, are in my all-time... Like, those might like those might, might be the most overrated films ever for me. We have those discussions all the time. We Space Odyssey, Blade Runner. We talk about different things, right? Can't wait to do those films. <laughs> those are the two. Yep. Okay, so that gets me to six. Mm-hmm. This is tough. These all are very closely bunched, so there's a bit of play in here sure. with these these next three. But six for me is probably death proof. At least there's some action. Mm-hmm. The problem is that movie is essentially two scenes: mm-hmm. the bar and then her on the hood. Yeah. The bar scene is filled with the stuff I think that you like from yeah. Tarantino. Some interesting discussions and some interesting dialogue. The problem is it just takes forever. Mm-hmm. And we start to see, for me, a chink in his armor in this film. Mm-hmm. And that is in a the celluloid melted 1970 yeah. kind of way. A parody of a genre long since passed. A jump ahead mm-hmm. to the action bit. And it's almost like he got tired of telling the story. And there's a bunch of shit that's like the middle part of this that I'm going to skip. So let's just get on to the, mm-hmm. the, the car wreck. That's six. Yeah. Five is probably Django. Um, it's just okay. It's it's just okay. For mm-hmm. me. I couldn't watch it again. I didn't want to leave the theater screaming. Mm-hmm. But it's it's just it's that's that's the epitome of a call film for me. Okay. It might seem that Jackie's inconsistent where I put it. Because I did not give that a great review when we did it. Mm-hmm. But that movie is at least interesting enough for me that I want to go back and see if I can dig out what he was trying to get across that didn't get there for me in that film. Like, mm-hmm. I could rewatch that movie again. Yeah. And maybe that's just Pam Greer. Yeah. Well, that's a big part of it, no mm-hmm. doubt. Number three in reverse order is Kill Bill 2 and 1. Those mm-hmm. are one movie yep. broken up into two pieces. Mm-hmm. The second half is better than the first half for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. But that comes into three. Okay. Number two is Reservoir Dogs. And then I know it's really on the nose Mm -hmm. and totally obvious, but his best film is Pulp Fiction by a mile. Mm -hmm. I would also tell you this, though. Yeah. True Romance would probably be like 1B. Mm -hmm. Well, technically not directed, but written by him. So, and there's a lot of, that's a really interesting story, which helps for me. Mm Mm-hmm. As far as how that movie got made and what it was, I really enjoy that film. It's, but it's, a, it's a good movie. It's not Tarantino canon. Sure. So there's my my nine. All right. Number nine for me is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's just, it's just devoid of all of his traits that I find to like in his films, apart from a interesting soundtrack. Yeah, it's... Listen to the the happy hour to, to, to get my feelings. So that, that's that's nine for me. I'm going to have a hard time going back to that one. I don't even know if I'm going to buy it to add it to his. I have all his films lined up on my on my movie case. So like, I don't know if I want to add this one to it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's too bad too because you have that awesome movie poster. Would have been nice if you would have delivered, huh? Yeah, you do have that poster. It's awesome. I do have that. <laughs> it's cool though. Um, number nine for me, you know, and I, I, I give it more credit now, you know, after Once Upon a Time, but it's just I like things a little bit more than this, and that's Kill Bill for me. Uh, I like the first part more than the second part for you. Again, I, I it's just a long journey to kind of get to where to where we're going. And was peppered with some interesting sequences, and I actually really like the soundtracks in both those movies. But I guess just on a rewatchability with me, like it's kind of you know up here. There's things I like in in some of his films coming up. Um, this might be shocking, but it's not a knock against the film. It's I guess just where I kind of think it falls for me is Reservoir Dogs would be would be next here. Well, I think defines you know. His aesthetic very well with the, the the opening dialogue sequences and the performances. I think it's less has that dark twinge of humor and is a little more serious than I like him to be at times. Um, without a little being a little tongue in cheek, which um, his, his other films have. I, I do like that film, and I know it's important. It kind of set him. It's that Shyamalan moment that he he kind of had. He had to kind of do more of that. But Death Proof is a is coming in next. This is a bit of a guilty pleasure for me, uh, just kind of based on you know the actors involved, the soundtrack, you know the dialogue, and it's just that grindhouse experience that I had. I that was really fun watching in the theater, um, which the movie totally bombed. Like it was such a disaster for both these guys. They both kind of consider it like kind of their worst efforts, like in their filmography. But uh, I like it. I, I have a lot of fun. My wife and I have a lot of fun watching that. That, that film uh, Jackie Brown kind of comes in next kind of in the middle and that's kind of what it is it's a middle tier Tarantino film so five it's five good performances soundtrack um, but next for me I, I you're very hard on it but and I think I can th- speak to why I like it uh, hateful eight's gonna be number four for me and I think I'd like this singular location because of you know, the reasons I like a film like The Thing. Playing on a paranoia, uh, a tension within a small setting with a limited amount of characters and like what's going to snap and who's going to break first. And I like seeing that play out. And for music choices, Ennio Morricone, he doesn't really have like songs like this film has. He had an, a guy actually compose a score for this, which is actually pretty good. Um, yeah, it's a little long, but... I just kind of like how everything plays out in a small setting. He scaled down for you know a film like this one that's got a, a huge scope to it. So number three for me is Django Unchained. Again, you know I like a lot of these characters. I like you know playing you know with this kind of idea of the western. You know like dealing kind of like playing with the the slavery element. You know again great performances by DiCaprio and. Christoph Waltz, even Jamie Foxx, and I'm not like a big Jamie Foxx fan. We were pretty hard on him in The Amazing Spider-Man too, but and he's pretty he's pretty good in this one. Two for me is Pulp Fiction. At, again, for everything you said, it's for it's his most iconic film. Everyone knows Royale with Cheese and the Ezekiel speech. And I was gonna play this game with you earlier, but for as iconic sequences as like Once Upon a Time is totally devoid of like. I was going to kind of do a round robin thing like give me like a syringe to the heart scene like where's that moment in this film it's it's not there Mm 
And then for me, again, we had this this talk last week, just shocking to you. But number one for me is Inglorious Bastards. For everything I said last week, it's just I like how it's different in his sensibilities, but still some of the things that you gravitate towards when you see his films. I think I just I just like the setting and I like I like the characters. I, I like the performances. And as Matt shakes his head at me over here, he's What's wondering, your list? I mean, well, I'm going to tell you your list is wrong. No, yeah. But I, again, I think it comes to, I think our lists line up to like where we kind of came into to Tarantino. Like you have a lot of his early stuff, whereas I think I saw Pulp Fiction was my, my first go-to. So that's my list. Uh, yeah, last night was very eye, eye-opening to me being that I was expecting long, drawn-out dialogue sequences of nothing but instead, what I got was a lot of driving and walking around of nothing. And I think there's a difference there. To me, that's boredom, whereas the other like finds a way to entertain me. I mentioned in the Jackie Brown podcast, I could have listened to those characters talk for like eight hours. And at least they're doing something. I can't watch people drive around listening to music for eight hours because that's what I do going to and coming from work. <laughs> like, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. That's me living my life. Yeah, escapism is a huge part of film. Yeah. Why so, do you want what we all do all the time? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that one just, yeah, that one leaves me very, last night leaves me very cold. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I, I said to you earlier, I'm glad we did the cask we did before this, which was Summer Tentpole Hall of Fame. We're going to have to do that again maybe next year because I think we covered some films that, you know, took chances, took risks, were rewarded heavily for that because... Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was something that was kind of needed at the time, but also it provided a great sense of escapism and entertainment, but also good stories and good characters and memorable films. Super high concept. Matt, I had two of the discs here. The, they were the 35th anniversary editions of two of those films. Like, they've stood the test of time, and this we have not had that this summer, like, at all, a film that's going to be, like, a defining film of, like, the, of a decade. Uh, yeah. I'm just off the top of my head, kind of rifling through everything that I've seen in 2019 so far. And I'm sort of sad to say that most of them are met with general disappointment. We talked about Serenity a lot. Mm-hmm. Glass was pretty bad too. Let's be honest about it. Glass wasn't good. I think Avengers Endgame, well, a good film. Well, I think... No, kind of an opportunity wasted as well. Palatable good. Yeah. Neither one of you are like we look that's a long podcast, our longest one. Mm-hmm. We laid out all the real real problems with that film. As- Spider-Man's a, a likable enough film, I guess. Yeah. Uh you know, I sort of alluded to this earlier. You know, you had mentioned to me like go see yesterday. Mhm. And I'm not the big biggest Beatle fan. Yeah, I, I I have my wheelhouse of twelve songs of theirs that I absolutely love. Sure, like everybody. But even that one was tough for you. Yeah, just yeah, it was just it was so so childish. Mm-hmm. The Patel brothers, in my opinion, are terrible actors. The romantic angle in that film, which is what that movie should be about, is him composing those songs mm-hmm. to get the girl, is not what that film is about. This idea that everyone has just sort of forgotten about the Beatles, save three people on the entire planet. And then... The part- I think I think the anxiety incident's thin, but I like the journey of trying to remember, you know, like making people... Re- 
hear these songs for the first time there's there's some fun in that but i'm I'm with you it's not like leaving a lasting impression on me every once in a while we'll walk into a movie and be pleasantly surprised prisoners yeah about time matt those films are already like six years old <laughs> i just it hasn't happened in a while that's what i'm getting to yeah it's been a while hasn't it yeah so let's kind of allude to what we got coming up with our next cask so we're doing something that we haven't done before, and I'm actually excited to see how this plays out, seeing something in unison. So this next one we're going to call the Baby Yaga Trilogy, and we're going to be covering the films of the John Wick series. Chap- John Wick, John Wick Chapter 2, and John Wick Chapter 3. Let's see how this goes. This could be fun. This might be something we want to revisit with maybe a few other franchises to see how films stack up next to each other within the same series. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it because I've actually only seen the first two one time. So I only have that like initial impression of them. Like it'll be nice to revisit it to kind of see there's some things I missed. Is there something like are things thinner in some areas that they're not? Like I just I remember the very thoroughly choreographed gun fu action sequences in this film. But no, I'm excited to, to revisit this. Let's cleanse our palate of... You know, just this horrific summer of 2019. <laughs> but yeah, so cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Excellent. I'm excited for that, but I got to get going. I'm going to go have dinner at Musso and Frank's in Los Angeles tonight. I'm going to go find Sharon Tate and Pussycat a pair of shoes. Okay. Because I can't stand to look at their feet anymore on the screen. <laughs> that was disgusting. If you go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, here's what you're going to see. A lot of walking, a lot of driving, a lot of watching people watch stuff, and a lot of feet. But I guess that was expected. (laughs) A lot of feet. (laughs) Excellent, everybody. We'll see you next week. Everybody, have a good week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, Stitcher, TuneIn, and leave us an email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is property of Columbia Pictures, Bonafide Film Group, Heyday Films, and Visiona Romantica, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Say